Today's scripture reading is from John 1, John 1, verses 43 through 46. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. <laughs> Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Come and see, said Philip. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, here we are, and um, I think I can probably speak for various people in this room to say that we're here to varying degrees right now, Lord. Um, some of us on the edge of our seats, desperate for a word from you. Some of us on the edge of our seats, desperate to wrap this thing up and get out of here. Some of us uh, consciously somewhere else later in the day, into the week tomorrow already, stuck in a moment from yesterday. And so we just, we offer you what we have, which for some of us would be all of us, and for some is probably just a tiny sliver, but you have always made so much out of so little that we bring, and we ask for that again today, God, as we just offer you our presence, our attention, our time, we pray that you would come and surprise us. We've been singing all morning about your faithfulness. We believe that you're even better than we can form into language, than we can comprehend. And so we make space for you to come and to experience something new of you today. We open up our hearts to you now, Lord. Come and speak to your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, as a new face around here, I just want to begin by saying that uh, practice-based discipleship, which if you didn't know is what you've been doing for however long you've been at this church, but gathering in community and putting the way of Jesus not just into discussion but into practice is such a phenomenal foundation to build on. And so I'm so privileged to join the ongoing story that's already been happening in this church and do my best to keep us moving in the same direction. So thank you so much to you, the congregation, who have been authentically putting one foot in front of the other in the way of Jesus. And thank you so much to the leaders, the lay leaders who have shepherded and pastored uh, this congregation along that way. Thank you for the staff that's dreamed all of this stuff up. And of course, thanks to John, Mark, and Tammy for architecting this and handing it off to me. I'm really grateful. And uh, along those lines, if you're new around here, you are joining us in the middle of both a teaching series and a practice. Those words always go together here. We're always trying to practice what we preach. Um, and this teaching series is simply entitled Preaching the Gospel. Or, uh, to put it in more common and familiar language, I figure it's better just to go ahead and rip the Band-Aid right up front. Today, we are talking about evangelism. Again. <laughs> and the reason for that is because of the priority of Jesus. Because when the Son of Man summed up his mission in the final week of his life, it sounded this way. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And when Jesus was describing the heart of God, he said more than once, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. 
And when the priests were infuriated that Jesus was out there breaking all of the rules in the name of compassion, he explained himself this way. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, I could keep going on like this because there's plenty of more examples, but at this point, why don't you just take my word for it? The lost were and are the priority of Jesus. And personally, I find it helpful that Jesus uses the word lost to describe those outside of relationship with him. Lost, meaning searching for a home, for safety, for rest, for who knows how long. Lost, that feeling that plunges down into your gut when you realize, I don't know the way to where I thought I was going, and I don't know the way back to where I last felt safe. Lost. It's a word of compassion, not one of categorization, and certainly not a word of condemnation. That's how Jesus describes the experience of life outside of covenant relationship to him. And the lost were and are the priority of Jesus. And because that's who God revealed himself to be a couple thousand years later, there happens to be a room full of mostly normal, generally reasonable, thoughtful, sincere, socially capable, emotionally intelligent people having a serious discussion about evangelism. Yes, evangelism. And if that, as I say it, sends a chill down your spine, you should know that you're not alone. That kind of reaction to the idea of evangelism, which just as a quick side note, is a word that never appears in the Bible. And so if that word's a problem for you, just throw it out and pick a different one. And it's in fact why we've titled this teaching series, Preaching the Gospel. Um, but it's why I'm using that word, I'm using it intentionally at this very moment because I want you to feel that negative connotation that you likely carry toward the idea of evangelism because that sort of reaction is the new normal, both inside and outside of the church. Uh, the Barner Research Group did a survey titled, Is Evangelism Going Out of Style? a few years back, where they polled over 2,000 adults and discovered this, that 100% of Christians agree with the statement, I personally have a responsibility to tell other people about my religious beliefs. But only 69% of Christians agree uh, with the statement, during the past 12 months, I explained my religious beliefs to someone who had different beliefs in hopes that they might accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. So there we observe a 31% gap between what I believe and how I actually live or what I really believe, to be completely honest. See, everywhere you look in the church today, you will see this growing gap between belief and practice when it comes to preaching the gospel. And I believe that the primary reason for that is because of a parallel shift uh, in our surrounding culture as a whole. So for many generations previous, uh, social norms were king, and you conform the self to those social norms. But today, the self is king, and therefore society must conform to me. That means that the only universally agreed upon moral wrong that exists today is evangelism. That you in any way infringe on my freedom to define my autonomous self. The greatest cultural taboo of our time is evangelism. Well, you want me to believe what you believe? And, and hold on, I'm supposed to want him and her and everyone else to draw the same conclusions to life's ultimate questions that I've drawn? You see, cultural stigmas are attached to evangelism of any and every variety, but perhaps greatest toward Christians trying to convert people to their faith. 
And that leaves us, as the church, torn between two realities. The first is the priority of Jesus. Preaching the gospel was clearly at the very heart of Jesus' mission. The problem isn't a lack of awareness toward that. The problem is awareness of that. Because when you actually attempt to live Jesus' priority, it, all comes, it always comes out feeling more like this. <laughs> right? Like it, it feels cheap to turn a sincere, even a life-changing encounter with God into evangelism. Because it always comes out of me feeling something like product placement, right? Like I'm some coercive salesman who's peddling the product of Jesus. God wants me to advertise for him, but in a subtle enough way that you don't know it's an ad. I I like you, Jesus, but if you were signing me up for your PR team, I just wish you had led with that. Because I thought I was signing up for unconditional love and life to the full, and this part makes the whole covenant feel more like a pyramid scheme, and that doesn't sit right. Because I encountered a God who turned my life upside down in in the most amazing way possible. But then when I try to share that in a pluralistic, intellectual, spiritually open, but religiously suspicious environment like Portland, it feels a whole lot more like product placement than like streams of living water are spilling the banks of my life to quench the soul thirst of others. And my faith is sincere. My life is devoted, but... What if my attempts at evangelism seem to cheapen that? What if they're an inadequate expression of the God that I know? This is what the author Alan Jones was getting at when he said, evangelism has been infected by the desire to package things for easy consumption. And the trouble with that, he goes on to say, is that Jesus does not sell well except as a narcotic that will take away your pain and make you intensely happy all the time. The question for the believer is how to tell the truth in faith so that what we are and what we present is both genuinely hopeful and uncompromisingly realistic. That gets at it, doesn't it? Eugene Peterson said something similar. It is the devil's own work to detach the language of salvation from the setting of salvation. To separate words from personal relationships, to make salvation a cause or a product, or I'm sorry, a project that can be conducted as efficiently and impersonally as possible. But the gospel will not permit it. In the story of our salvation, we find the architect of our salvation going about his salvation work in the thick textures of place and person. He's saying that when the message of Jesus gets peeled away from the person and way of Jesus, as it so often does today, it's hollowed out and empty. But sadly, that hollowed, empty expression of sharing our faith is the one that most, if not all of us, are primarily familiar with. And so what was a central priority for Jesus gets pushed to the periphery for so many of us. And we are left with either a normalized or a privatized faith. See, many of us normalize Jesus. Meaning we've bought into the subtle and deceptive idea that I'm doing God a favor by making him seem as normal as possible. Like Jesus is so laid back and cool, whatever. You can follow him in such a way that no one would even notice. As if God is in heaven looking down going, you're crushing it down there. You're disguising me perfectly. (laughs) See, you can be a Christian and be completely normal. And many of us, on a serious note, are doing our best to prove it. 
But I do wonder if we have elevated appearing normal over Christ-like love. And if there's tension there. And then there's others in the room who will privatize Jesus. So because we live in a culture that is intolerant of preaching the gospel, we've maintained our faith, but maybe retreated with it into the private sector. And we live a story that's essentially like, you do your thing and I'll do mine. We live a disjointed and compartmentalized existence where Jesus is a part of my life when I'm in environments and around company to whom Jesus is culturally palatable. But in most of the environments I'm in, as I go about my every day, I respectfully keep that part of myself private. See, many of us under the guise of emotional intelligence have been perfecting the careful dance of never being thought less of for following Jesus seamlessly integrating our faith into culture in a way that will never compromise our comfort. Now, this is Jesus who said, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. That is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So if your primary concern is following Jesus in a way that camouflages into your surroundings and costs you nothing socially, Jesus says, You're in the wrong company. And what we're left with when we live that way is a pluralistically, pluralistically accepted, socially viable, well-respected, surprisingly winsome, and powerless faith. One that avoids off-putting confrontation, but also avoids risk and trust. Avoids uh, or corrects the worst of Christian misconceptions, but also misses out on the best of spiritual fruit. One that is thoughtful and well-rounded, but also almost never surprised by God. And at this point, half of you in the room or in your living rooms at home will be ready to tune me out, and the other half of you are ready to get out there and try harder. (laughs) But I think... There is something much deeper in this widening gap between our belief and practice when it comes to preaching the gospel. So Barna did a more recent study, and this one they zoomed in and focused exclusively on church-going Christian millennials, and here's what they discovered. 96% of responders said that part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. Phenomenal. 94% said the best thing that can ever happen to someone is that they come to know Jesus. Beautiful. 94% of millennial Christians saying, the most loving thing I could ever do is introduce another to Jesus so that they can experience life in the kingdom of God. 86% went further than that. They said, when someone raises a question about faith, I know how to respond. Don't worry about me in an evangelistic conversation. I can handle myself. (laughs) 73% took it further than that. I'm gifted at sharing my faith with other people. It's not just that I can handle myself when I'm backed into a corner. I'm actually gifted when it comes to sharing my faith. Alpha, why are you running alpha? Bring your friends to me. (laughs) And despite all that, 47% said it is wrong to share your beliefs with someone of a different worldview. That's half of young adult Christians in the church today. How can that be? How can half of the people who say the most loving thing you could ever do for someone is introduce them to Jesus also say, but there is a moral issue with introducing them to Jesus? You see, the church today is filled with evangelists in theory, but relativists in practice. We are torn, confused, and paralyzed when it comes to the topic of sharing our faith. And that tragic misconception uh, that that makes its way to the heart of so many of us is based on, on this idea. God shows up when I show up. 
And that couldn't be further from the truth. Said another way, many of us have bought into this lie. God starts pursuing someone when I awkwardly breach the faith topic with them. And that couldn't be further from the truth. In January of 2016, there was a guy named Mike sitting uh, in the church I lead in Brooklyn. He was sitting in the midst of a sea of empty chairs because he had arrived 15 minutes early. He did not know that in churches like ours, everyone arrives 15 minutes late, (laughs) including me. Um, The reason that he was there is that he had made a New Year's resolution to be more spiritual. Now, this was the first Sunday of the new year, and we were his first stop on a tour of various faith communities of different religions that he had planned throughout New York City. He didn't get to any of those other stops. He was intrigued that day, and to his surprise, he just kept on coming back. I got to know him. We had coffee. I learned his story. Our families got together for dinner. I met his wife, Jess, who had no interest in joining him at church, but was quite pleasant and easygoing. He came along to an Alpha course, accepted Christ. It was amazing. Uh, We started reading John's gospel together. I remember sitting next to him at a New York Mets baseball game and him leaning over to me in like the third inning saying, hey man, do you know about Lazarus? That's a pretty big deal. Dead than alive again. Why are you not talking about that story on Sundays? And uh, we started praying together that his wife would come to know Jesus. A year later, she had been transformed by the very God who had transformed her husband, who was woven deeply into the fabric of our community. And as I got a front row seat to all of that, God had something to say to me. I can remember later that year reflecting back on Mike's story, which was sincerely to this day one of the great joys of my pastoral life, and God just posing to me a question in the deep place of my inner being. Tyler, where were you when I started all of that? And I thought about it, and the truth is, I was resting. On New Year's Day of 2016, when God was drawing Mike in with a seed of spiritual curiosity, a New Year's resolution to be more spiritual, I was visiting my extended family for the holidays. I was not planning initiatives, sending emails, praying for the lost, or making any plans. Actually, I was eating stale Christmas cookies and binge-watching Making a Murderer, which is probably what you were doing around that time because the Avery family was taking America by storm. I don't know if you remember. (laughs) And when Mike was making this harmless little resolution that ended in life and life to the full, I was entirely uninvolved, resting. And I just heard God gently whisper to me, don't you see, I'm not giving you a divine obligation called evangelism. I'm inviting you into what I'm already doing. So preaching the gospel is not a redeemed obligation. It is a loving invitation. It is not the responsibility to take God where God is needed. It is the invitation to join God in where he's already going. We cringe at the thought of evangelism because we've bought into this illusion that it's up to us, that somewhere along the way, the Son of Man stopped seeking and saving the lost and then dropped that responsibility in our laps. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus famously said this in Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Have you ever noticed that Jesus never once instructs us to pray that God would pursue people? I mean, that part's just guaranteed. Remember? 
He's the one who came to seek and to save the lost. He's the good shepherd that leaves the 99 in pursuit of the wandering one. He's the doctor who's out looking for the sick. God's pursuit is never in question. And yet, how many times have you heard well-meaning Christians pray for a harvest? God's response to that prayer is always, open your eyes. I mean, Jesus said that famous line while he and his disciples were passing through Samaria. Samaria, the the foreign people that the Jews believed did not understand God. They thought that their form of worship was debased and beneath them and filled with misconception. Jesus gazes at Samaria, the environment that in the Hebrew imagination would be the furthest place from having a harvest and says, look, even now the fields are ripe for harvest. Translation to our time, Jesus never tells us to pray that God would pursue the lost only that the found would notice where he's going and join him. God's never stopped pursuing, and we have never stopped compartmentalizing where God is active and where God is absent. Because what was Samaria for the disciples has become for us the office for the working professional and the playground for the stay-at-home parent. It's that friendship that you gave up on years ago or the older sibling that you just avoid the faith topic with altogether. It's the workmates that you happy hour with on Fridays or the college buddy that crashes with you when he's in town. It's the string of tents that you pass on your commute or the Uber driver as you climb into his back seat. It's the environments where, look, if you pushed me, I guess I'd say sure. God is active and pursuing relationship with my coworkers and my family members, but my eyes are not open open with expectation. You see, we still assume that God is more active in certain environments than others. We show up to church on Sunday or to our midweek community with this real belief and expectation that God will meet us here, that he's active here, but then we go to work or to socialize with friends and we assume that God is more or less on the back burner. Jesus is saying, don't pray for a harvest, pray that you'd recognize me. Don't you know that I'm always a step ahead of you? Always out finding the wandering. So, preaching the gospel is not about bringing God where God is needed. It's about joining God where God is already going, and that is the practice we are zeroing in on today. To sum it all up in one word, invitation. That's what I want to talk to you about, invitation. Mainly because recognizing where God is already working and joining in is a mouthful. And because that process, when it surfaces from the unseen inner life into the outer visible world, always comes out looking as normal and simple as invitation. And my personal favorite preaching the gospel story in the whole of scripture is found in John chapter 1. We read it a few minutes ago. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth. Can anything good come from there, Nathaniel asks? Come and see, said Philip. Come and see. That's how Nathaniel became one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. One of the 12 that journeyed beside God in the flesh for three years. They got a front row seat to the life of the peasant whose legacy far outran the Roman Caesar. Is there a better group to get in on the ground floor of in human history? And how do you get into his inner circle this way? Just come and see. Just invitation. In the final pages of the memoir of Joseph Noss, he, a recovering addict, walks out of an AA meeting in Los Angeles. 
and starts making his way to his car. And as he's going, he notices a guy that he recognized from the meeting walking in the same direction as him. It turns out as he engages him in conversation that that was that man's first ever 12-step meeting, which he was advised to attend by his lawyer, who thought that getting a meeting or two under his belt would look better when he's in court pleading for mercy after multiple DUIs. Hey, man, you walking this way too? Yeah, just down there to the bus stop. Oh, well, my car's actually parked just around the corner. Can I give you a ride home? Sure. That'd be great. So the DUI guy spends this whole car ride complaining about how unbearable it is to deal with the legal process, and he lights a cigarette and smokes it in Joseph's car with all the windows up the whole way. What he doesn't know is that Joseph's just been released from prison and has recently attempted to quit smoking. Joseph resists the urge to one-up this passenger story with the legal process with his own. He also quiets the urge to be offended by the smoking, which is nearly unbearable on his cravings, and he just listens. And then his passenger spends the rest of the ride explaining why all the things that rubbed him the wrong way in the meeting and how he understands why this whole program might work for some people. He just happens to not be one of those people, and this is probably the only meeting he'll ever show up to. And when they finally pull up in front of his house, Joseph speaks for the first time in the entire car ride and says simply this, Hey man, I'm going to another meeting tomorrow. Same time, same place. Can I pick you up? Yeah, sure, I guess. And that's how it happens. That's how people find a community that loves them, supports them, listens to them, and helps them get free. You see, for those drowning in addiction, the way into the experience of hope and freedom and love and family, it's someone moving slowly enough and compassionately enough to offer a simple invitation. Come and see. In fact, the story of the biblical church inspired the 12-step literature, uh, which claims that becoming a person of invitation is part of your own healing. In other words, it's not just like, hey, invite people if you're really bought into the program and you're looking for extra credit. It's you cannot be made whole unless your wholeness is then spent on others. Invitation is part, an essential part of your healing, wholeness, and freedom. You see, we talk all the time about the power of the early church community. We talk about the way that they loved one another and shared meals and prayed for each other, bore each other's burdens, paid each other's debts. But the early church was known for two things, for how they loved one another and for how invitational they were to the lost. The early church was by definition the most evangelistic community in world history. The few hundred years following Jesus' death and resurrection saw the greatest statistical human revolution on record to this day, and it's one that included people of different races, classes, cultures, and languages. The early church transcended every category that should have hemmed her in. The beauty of that sort of community is always dependent on something as simple as invitation. Study the practices of the early church and you will find radical love for another um, within the family, but you'll also find radical invitation to the stranger outside of the family. So what was the way into such a profound community? It was something like this. Come and see. You're invited. Let me bring this a little bit closer now. One Saturday in Brooklyn, uh, I got into a conversation with an older woman who was passing out Jehovah's Witnesses tracts at the corner of the park that I live next to. And I discovered that she had spent every Saturday for 30 years 
at that corner handing out those pamphlets. Now, don't get me wrong here. I completely disagree with her message. I think every word written inside that pamphlet is manipulative and deceptive and dangerous. And I also disagree with her methods. I think that a sheet of paper is inadequate for whole life transformation. But I am challenged by her commitment to invitation because it far, far exceeds my own. So here's a question worth asking. Are we an invitational people? Like in an honest description of the core personality traits of Bridgetown Church, would invitational be on the list? Or are we trying to drag the early church's sense of radical community into the modern world, but leave their radical invitation in the past? And that's not a leading question. I'm new around here. I don't know the answer. I just think it's worth reflecting on. The theologian and historian Michael Green in his book, The Church's First 30 Years, after detailing all the practices related to invitation present in that first community, says this, the passion to spread the gospel was a major characteristic of the early church. They challenge us to put evangelism at the head of our list of priorities and give ourselves to it wholeheartedly. For the church in the West has grown complacent, obese, inactive, and far too respectable for that sort of thing. See, the mistake of the church in a previous era was to cheapen the loving invitation and make it into something more efficient, to turn something as relational as, um, as evangelism or as invitation into nothing more than religious marketing, to peel the message of Jesus away from the person of Jesus. But the temptation of church in our day is to react to the recent past by throwing the baby out with the bathwater and just forgetting invitation altogether. So for a certain kind of church, being culturally tone-deaf tone and insensitive in sharing our faith is a real danger. But for another kind of church, one more like ours, the danger is that we'd fall for the deception that we're doing the outside world a favor by not sharing our faith. Our danger is that we would grow more sophisticated than Jesus and lose a sense of childlike wonder that he really is loving, pursuing, and wooing hearts even now, even when we can't see it. Jesus never tells us to pray that God would pursue the lost. He tells us to pray that we'd come with him. Have we stopped going with Jesus? The most common way that God draws people into his family is through this. It is through the gathered body of believers functioning as a prophetic family. Every introvert in the room right now should be sighing with relief. Like, whew, Tyler, man, that was close. <laughs> I thought you were going to have me handing out pieces of paper at the bus stop. <laughs> this isn't that. But even the richest community can't be experienced without invitation. Can I just name something that is more intimidating and risky than inviting a, a friend into this community? It's that same friend showing up to this community without the invitation. Only love cares enough to see that. Only love cares enough to make the first move. Only love risks personal awkwardness and discomfort and rejection on behalf of another. There is only one thing that will sustain and move us through our comfort zones over time toward invitation, and it's love. Because inspiration fades and willpower burns out and guilt never leads to redemption. So what moves you through your comfort zone? Love. What keeps your attention on your coworkers or classmates when you're drowning in deadlines and assignments? Only love. 
What won't let you give up on that friend that you've seen go through a thousand phases and you just don't have the energy this time? Only love. And what makes being dismissed or misunderstood or rejected or characterized worth the risk? Only love. This is what Paul was getting at in Romans 9 when he said, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. See, that's a depth of love and compassion to join Jesus in his pursuit of the lost that I honestly know nothing about. But that kind of selfless love growing and expanding within me, that's the only thing that will consistently get me outside of myself. It's only love. And so if you were to ask me, Tyler, what is the one thing I could do that would most accelerate my spiritual growth in the next season? I would say, oh, easy. This is the greatest pastoral meeting of my life. First of all, I've never been asked that question. Secondly, invitation. That's the answer. Invitation. Invite a friend to Alpha or to a Sunday gathering or into your midweek community and then walk alongside them as they go. Because with that invitation, you will pray and need God to act. You will risk and see God at work. You will sacrifice out of love for another and experience, embody what it is like to live as Jesus. And you will interact with the foundations of your faith story from the vantage point of an outsider. Now that is not the easiest way to live in the coming season, but it is the way that will, it is the expression that will mature your faith the most. The very best stories that will come out of this church, the ones that you will tell and tell and tell and live off of and build your faith on, they're waiting on the other side of invitation. Just come and see. Would it be all right if I bring this a little bit closer? Yeah? Christian's down, so I'm just going to assume he speaks for the room. Here's what heaven celebrates when the lost are found. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Just in case anyone missed it, three verses later, Jesus just ran it back. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And be really honest with yourself. In your time at Bridgetown, whether that's six weeks or six months or a couple of decades, how many people have you personally invited into this family? How many Sundays have you sat in this church extra nervous because there was a friend sitting next to you and you had no idea how they were interacting and you were sitting there with your hands on your, sitting on your hands thinking, oh my goodness, John Mark, do not say that that way. How many times, I'm just kidding, he's never said anything the wrong way. Um, <laughs> how many times have you taken the risk of sharing the intimacy of your community with an outsider? How many times have you dismissed yourself from inviting a friend into an alpha course without ever even having a conversation with Jesus about it? And look, I know, how, I know that COVID has complicated this whole concept drastically. So if you just look at the recent past, there's plenty of valid barriers. But what I'm getting at, the heart of this thing is, would you, in a core description of your own personality, describe yourself as an invitational person? Or to ask it a little more directly and maybe a little bit more biblically, are you living a life over which heaven is celebrating? or silent. And the only reason I ask is because of the priority of Jesus. <laughs> because you cannot follow this rabbi. You cannot come behind him and practice his way without regularly looking at someone else and saying with sincerity in your heart, come and see.
Your own healing and wholeness is all caught up in this awkward journey to the edge of your comfort zone to offer that invitation to another. Now, whether you like it or not, I'm going to bring this as close as I possibly can. According to Pew Research, Portland is the most religiously unaffiliated city in America. And to spare you more stats, I'll just say this, that if you crunch all of the numbers, you end up with a tiny fraction of our city that is following Jesus. Now, Jesus talked about leaving the 99 to go after the one. The, the mission in Portland is more like leaving the one to go after the 99. And the whole logic behind Jesus' parable was that the flock can rely on each other, nourish each other, find safety in each other, but the heart of the shepherd is to go after the one lost, the one who's alone and wandering without all of that. But the psychology of spirituality in an urban environment like this one is just stay safe with the flock. Just in a hyper-secular, pluralistic, intellectually intimidating city like Portland, we tend to think that the fight of our faith is for survival. We get this survival spirituality in the city that says, stay safe with the flock. Just don't get eaten up by the big bad city. Just hold on to your convictions against all cost. It's a survival spirituality that says, as long as I'm in my community, as long as I'm balanced, I'm rested, I'm spiritually and emotionally healthy, as long as I've got my God and my people, I'm good. But that is not the spirituality of Jesus. And I'm preaching to myself here, just so you know. I wrote this talk to me this week. Jesus is doing everything he can to convince us of this. You are the dangerous ones. You are not defensive and on your heels. You are the dangerous ones. You are the ones with two feet firmly planted in the only kingdom that lasts. You are the ones whose identity is hidden away in a victory that has already been won. You are the ones filled with the power that broke the back of death itself. That victory has already been won. The future is secure. You cannot lose. You're the dangerous ones. And I completely believe that God has designed you as an individual and placed you into human history at this moment, in this part of the world, with this personality, and this set of hobbies and preferences, because you are the best person he's ever designed to reach the people who are around you. And if you live without a belief that God is living and active and pursuing those around you, you probably won't notice even if he is. But if you live with a belief that God is living and active, you will notice and join in, what, in on what he is already doing. Invitation is not about product placement for Jesus. It is joining God in his greatest passion, and that is restored relationship with people. So here's where I'd like to land. Um, Tony Campolo, who's a well-known sociologist and writer, he opens one of his books with the true story of a speaking engagement he once had in Honolulu. Uh, and he had flown from Ohio, you know, near the East Coast to Hawaii, terribly jet-lagged. So he wakes up the first morning that he's there at 2.30 a.m. in his hotel room, super hungry, needing something to eat, but he's also living in a world before Google Maps. Can you remember that? Just the Wild West out there. So he starts wandering around the city just looking for anywhere that's open. An hour later, he finally happens upon this 24-hour diner. He walks in, he's the only person there. He sits down at the diner counter, orders with the cook, and as he's sitting there sipping his coffee and waiting on his food, he hears that like, ring, ring, you know, that diner bell as someone walks in. And a group of what was obviously eight or nine female prostitutes walks in the door, and they sit down, and they start having a very loud 
not discreet conversation behind him. And so he hears every last word of it. Um, and they're in that mood where everything is funny, you know, no matter what anyone's saying. So eventually one of them says, oh, I'm going to be 39 tomorrow. And someone says, oh, what do you want us to do, throw you a birthday party? And she says, I've never had a birthday party in my life. Why start now? And it's like, haha, you know, it's that whole deal. And they slip out a bit later, and then Campolo says to the cook, as he's still sitting there at the counter paying his check, hey, do they come in here every night? Yep, every night, 3.30 a.m., right on the dot. It's like clockwork. And that one who said it's her birthday, do you know her? Oh, yeah, that's Agnes. I've got an idea. What if you and I throw Agnes a birthday party? And he's like, Sure. And he says, great, I'll buy the cake, I'll pick up birthday decorations, I'll come here tomorrow at 2.30, so I get here an hour early, and I'll take care of everything if you just let me use your diner to host the party. Why not? So Campolo shows up at 2.30 a.m. the next night, but when he gets there, the place is already packed with about 25 apparent prostitutes from the area because the cook has put the word out. And so they start distributing all these cheesy, like, paper mache-ish birthday decorations and balloons, and they're hanging them up all over the diner, and everyone's pitching in. And then when, an hour later, when that group of nine walks in again, they all say, Happy Birthday! And Agnes is so taken back, her legs just start trembling. And two people have to physically lead her to a bar stool at the diner counter. And everyone begins to sing happy birthday as the cook throws the kitchen door open and comes out with a cake with 39 candles burning in it and brings it and sets it right before her. And as they finish the song, she just says, I know that I'm supposed to blow out the candles and everyone gets a piece. But I've never had a birthday cake before. And I'd really like to just take this home and put it in my freezer so I can look at it from time to time. Would that be all right? And when she asked that, with tears streaming down her face, suddenly the mood in the room swung from celebratory to quite somber and moving. And no one knew quite what to say next, and so Campolo just breaks the silence with a prayer over Agnes, because that's what pastors do when no one knows what to say next. <laughs> they don't teach you that, but it just feels right. And he says, amen, and then the cook says, with a little bit of attitude, hey, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. And he says, well, you can pray if you're not a preacher, but I kind of am. And he says, what kind of church do you belong to? And he says, I belong to the church that throws birthday parties for strangers at 3.30 in the morning. And that's the church of Jesus Christ. And that's what she was at her very best and what she still is at her very best. So whatever has gotten stuck to Jesus as a result of people who have used his name for something less than that, you have to know today that that is who he is. He's the one who throws birthday parties for prostitutes in the middle of the night and parties for tax collectors in the light of day. And in his name, a community was formed. And it is for sex workers sobering up over eggs and toast and the pimps that sell their bodies. It's for the diner cook who thinks he's just spectating. And it's for the preacher who thinks he's got the whole thing down to a science by now. And it's for the awkward, overwhelmed intern at your office. 
and for the neighbor across the street and for the mom that you always chat with at the playground and the guy who works behind the counter at the gym and your roommate's new boyfriend who never leaves your place. And it's for you. You are invited. So whatever may have gotten stuck to the idea of invitation, can we as a community recover what Jesus made it at first? Can we be a people who together are bold enough to make the first move and faithful enough to pray and not give up and honest enough to live with sincerity and loving enough to listen, I mean really listen, and then move through our comfort zone and let my risk make the space for your risk? and participate in the redemption, of the, the, or the redemption stories of our friends, can we become an invitational people? Because something happens to us when we stop preaching the gospel, when we don't find ourselves throwing birthday parties and diners or deeper and deeper conversations with coworkers or becoming an invitational presence to our friends. We tend to forget this thing called the gospel. It's good news. So here's the ending to the Philip and Nathaniel story that we haven't read yet. A few verses after Philip says, come and see, Nathaniel encounters Jesus for himself. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And that very day, Jesus introduced Nathanael to the God that he thought he was just fine without, restored him to the family that he was created to find a home within, and came right into the place of his deepest need and brought life. That's the ending to the story that began with, come and see. And what do you call all of that? Jesus called it salvation. Salvation starts with God, not with us. It's about an all-powerful God who, who is humble enough that he is loving and kind and merciful, who is for you and not against you. He is so for you, in fact, that he came to live here among us as a common peasant. Now, what would cause God to undress himself of every garment of glory running from heaven to earth just to occupy space next to you and me? Only love. But salvation isn't cheap. It's not a Disney script. It's real and gritty and earthy and unflinchingly honest. Salvation acknowledges the stark truth of the human condition. I'm talking about the terminal problems that we can't escape, things that go by names like sin and death and all of the consequences surrounding it, but also the internal problems that are unique to us, like that never-before-made unique cocktail of issues you carry around within you, resentment and fear and loneliness. I'm talking about the inner angry fight that never stops, the unquenchable need to accomplish, and the sneaking suspicion that you're always proving yourself to someone somewhere and never quite done, the unshakable inch of insecurity and the search for intimacy that you can soothe but never solve. Salvation is not about pulling a parachute so you can escape all of those things. It's a move through it to look uh, the mess in the eye and then invite God to come and meet you in the midst of your profound pain and struggles. And salvation does not avoid death. Salvation chooses death. And by choosing death, God made uh, a choice available to me and you as well. He said, look, I'll take your terminal problems and your internal problems, the ultimate ending and the unique mess that you've made out of the living, and in return, I'll give you my life. 
The kind without an end. The kind that keeps on moving toward healing until the whole thing's been made completely whole. And then you'll have a new kind of future, one of forever exploring the depths of this endless love. It's John 17. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. But it's not just that, because you're not just a victim in need of rescue. You are then an agent of ongoing rescue. The ultimate dignity is that God makes us participants with him in the unfolding story of redemption that rolls throughout history. So salvation doesn't just end with your individual rescue, as good as that is. God won't stop until he's created a city that is more diverse and beautiful and alive than Portland will ever be and filled it with redeemed people. And he's going to light it by his constant presence with us. And we will live there forever with him, but never grow old and weary. That's good news. It's good news worth receiving. And I'd argue that it's news good enough to share. And when that crashes into a single life, there are no words for it. But Jesus gave us one anyway. Salvation. And the way into all of that is invitation. Just come.